And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is The Real Investment Show and it's live. Yes, uh, it's welcome back, Cotter Day. So... We are back in the studio live after a week off, of course. Uh, my son has uh, come in from uh, Germany, so we spent last week getting him settled in. And uh, he'll be here for a couple of months before he goes back uh, to the UK. So uh, he's in the process of moving countries. So we are in the middle of the visa application filing process with the embassy. So that was a lot of work last week. But um, everything's great. Everything's moving forward good. So, and of course, uh, while I was out, that was when everything's going on, of course, with Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse and everything you want to know about. So we'll get into a lot of that stuff this morning. Most of it, though, uh, has already passed. Um, you know, this is one of the kind of the big things that's, you know, about these markets today. These events move very quickly through the markets and, you know, are processed very rapidly. And, and of course, we have a lot of negative headlines, you know, with, with, with Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank and uh, what's happening with first, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. A lot of that's already been moving through the news very quickly. Markets, of course, adopting to that as well. Uh, the Federal Reserve, of course, also taking action here along with the Treasury here over the last week. Of course, they opened up their dollar swap lines, which allowed foreign banks to access dollar liquidity. And there's been a huge draw on that. That's been one thing's kind of propping up the international banks. Of course, domestically, what we've got going on is, is of course, the Fed has offered loan programs to small banks here. Of course, this has now reversed about a third of all the quantitative tightening because the Fed's balance sheet is now expanding again. Now, this is not technically QE because the banks aren't buying bonds from, uh, sorry, the Fed isn't buying bonds from the banks. They're loaning money to the banks for eligible collateral, but they're loaning that money at full face value. But this is expanding the balance sheet. So, you know, there's, so the topic of this weekend's newsletter, of course, was if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And that's the way the markets are taking it. Um, you know, on Friday, despite all this turmoil, the markets actually rallied very nicely, got above the 200-day moving average of, and, and is starting to start making this kind of this progress going on. And, and we're, we've triggered MACD buy signals as well as our money flow indicator that was all kind of in the newsletter this weekend, which is on the website right now at realinvestmentadvice.com. So that is all now giving kind of this bullish bias back to the markets, of course. Now, in early February, we wrote an article called The Market Correction Had Started. And this was because we got MACD sell signals across. We talked about that for the entire month of March, uh, pretty much saying, hey, pay attention to these sell signals. That puts downward pressure on prices. And, you know, that's what we were dealing with all through the month of February and, and really about halfway through March were these sell signals on the markets. Well, the, this rally that we've now had over the last really couple of weeks has now turned those sell signals back up on positive buy signals. That's now giving upward bias pressure to the markets. And again, markets have been kind of forming, you know, these higher lows. So if you, I mean, if you go back and look at the market action here over the last couple of weeks, in particular, despite all these headlines about bank risk and 
what's going on with international banks. Markets have been setting just a, a, a nice rising trend in prices. And I know that's that's frustrating, right? If you're very bearish and you're and you're and you're looking at the world about the end scenario, it's like how can this possibly be the case? Well, the the reason is is that markets price in this news very fast. But what markets are also looking at are estimates. Um, I was talking about this last week with Adam Taggart on the Wealthion video saying, look, if you're going to buy gold, there's only one thing you need to know. And that is the direction of real interest rates. That's what affects gold prices. Same thing with the markets. If you want to know where the markets are going, look at forward earnings estimates. Forward earnings estimates have been ratcheting higher here. Expectations are that earnings have now troughed in the first quarter of this year. So now estimates are moving higher through the end of this year and the S&P S&P Global just released their 2024 estimates which now have earnings estimates for the S&P back to where they were at January of 2022. So basically pushing earnings estimates back to all-time highs. Now, that of course those forward outlooks for earnings of course is where you start talking about valuations and you know, this is where investors are getting a little bit of, of bullish optimism here saying, hey, look, if earnings are going to increase from here, if we have priced in the worst of the economic outlook, then I've got upside in markets. Now, that's probably not the case. The reality is, is that we are still probably due for a recession here, and that is going to slow earnings growth because the economy will slow down. The Federal Reserve last week, of course, also talking about this very same thing is that, hey, we've got to keep hiking interest rates. And when Jerome Powell spoke following his FOMC meeting, he said specifically multiple times, the focus remains on inflation because inflation remains well above the 2% target rate. So they are continuing to focus on that piece of, of, of information, which is that inflation fact. Now, they did make a nod towards the uh, you know, financial stability of, of the banks and, of course, saying and basically giving us their, their, their best line, which is the banks are safe and solvent, absolutely no problem with financial stability, so we're going to continue to focus on inflation. Market bought into that, but at the same time, the market is also saying the Fed is done hiking rates. They might hike one more time, but that's it. And in fact, the markets are now pricing in 110 basis points of rate cuts by the end of this year, which is a, is a de facto turn back to quantitative easing. Another reason that markets are trying to rise here is that investors are starting to bet on a reversal of Fed policy. But as we've talked about before, and importantly, when the Fed reverses policy, it won't be the time to buy stocks. So while we may get a very nice rally here short term, and look, right now I've got an article coming out tomorrow, it's our Tuesday take, talking about 4,200 as the target rally for this, uh, for this particular run. While we could get a rise to roughly 4,200 on the S&P 500, now 41, 4,200 is probably the target. But while we could get that rise to that, that is just a reflexive rally in the markets. Markets are oversold, you're going to get a reflexive rally, that's what's going to happen. But as we get further into this year, and what we'll talk about more in the show today, is that there is still a tremendous amount of risk of a much slower economic environment, and that's going to lead to a, to a decline in prices to adjust for lower valuations. Now, that doesn't mean a market crash, right? This doesn't mean markets are going to go down to you know, 30 or 40%, but there's probably still downside risk to this market of some sort, uh, probably about midsummer 
and particularly if the Fed is starting to cut rates, it will be in response to either an economic recession or a further development of financial stability issues. But nonetheless, right now, markets remain positive this morning. Markets are going to open higher. That'll help push this market up a bit more uh, to the top, really, of this kind of this little consolidation range we've been in. If we can get a break of above 4,000 on the S&P here uh, in the next couple of days, that's going to kind of help that target move up and allow markets to, to rise. So, you know, if you're long equities right now, this will be a good opportunity to, you know, rebalance risk into that rally. Of course, as we've talked about all year, this has really been kind of the challenge, using rallies to rebalance your risk, rebalance your portfolios. Uh, we did pick up a couple of trading positions last week in the portfolio. We'll probably add to those in the next day or so, depending on what the market does here. Um, but again, we're kind of looking for a bit more of a push in the markets here short term. And again, this is gonna be frustrating because if you're in that kind of really bearish camp, the markets are gonna do stuff probably in the next couple of weeks. They're gonna really kind of frustrate that. And that's why, again, it's, it's really important don't be bullish or bearish. Just pay attention to what the markets are doing and what the markets are, are trying to do. And importantly, right now, markets want to go higher here, at least in the short term. All right, quick break. Come back. We've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning as we get back from a week of vacation. A lot of stuff to catch up on. We'll get into all of that this morning right here with you. But get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Newsletter is out as well as our daily commentary. It's on the website right now. Be right back. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Long-term care may sound like a bore, but if you neglect it, you'll pay even more. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for our next Candid Coffee. Don't be foolish about long-term care. Saturday, April 1st. You may think you're prepared for long-term care, but you may be fooling yourself. Learn how to plan to protect yourself and your loved ones. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, April 1st, realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So again, uh, as is generally always the case, two things happen when I uh, take off a week for vacation is that either the markets crash or there's some financial event of some sort it just tends to be the case. So a lot of stuff to catch up on from last week. But, you know, as as really as, as you know, we, we talk about these things and again, you know, um, we had Deutsche Bank basically bailing out Credit Suisse and, you know, just a whole whole variety of, of issues going on. Uh, you know, things are moving fairly quickly through this you know, kind of seemingly crisis point in the markets, right? We've got bank failures all of a sudden and uh, lots of concern. I'm getting just a ton of emails talking about, you know, this is this is it. This is the beginning of the next major financial crisis. And it's not, um, at least at this point. And the reason I say that it's not is because there's some ev there are some components missing that have not matured yet. And I'm not saying they will either. But in order to have a full-fledged kind of financial crisis moment, there's some other factors that we have to, to start having occur within the financial system that we haven't had just yet. Now, and, you know, but this is, this is kind of the, the, the interesting point, right? So you know, we, we had these bank failures. And again, there's, there's kind of an interesting point. You know, as, as we were talking about these, 
and talk about Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, week before last and, and what was happening with First Republic is that this was, you know, exactly 15 years following Bear Stearns. And if you go back and look at what happened at Bear Stearns, there's two very interesting kind of similarities as to what's going on. Now, Bear Stearns happened, and they had two big funds that they were running at the time, which were their, their high-quality mortgage-backed security funds. And these were touted as very safe investments. They were sold off to pension funds, et cetera. And, these were, and, and they were using um, collateralized default obligations and you know, other type of, of mortgage-related instruments that were heavily leveraged. And it was all great as long as interest rates were low. And then when the Fed started hiking rates, things began to break. And that was one of the markets that broke. Basically, liquidity just, just dried up in the CDO market. And they, you know, they had millions of dollars of these obligations that were, you know, vol trading volume dried up to like 100,000 shares a day. I mean, it was like nothing. And so all of a sudden, people started wanting their money back, and there was no liquidity in the markets. Nobody wanted to buy these things. And so this put Bear Stearns in a very poor position. And regulators stepped in, and, and long story short, orchestrated a sellout of $2 a share to J.P. Morgan. Now, just a year prior, the stock had been trading at $172 a share. So the demise of Bear Stearns came very quickly. And, and what, was, what was assured at that moment, if you remember back then, is like, oh, my gosh, you know, what is going on here? Nobody was quite sure, but Bear Stearns got resolved and the markets rallied over the next couple of months. And the reason for that was is that this event was solved. And while there were some other stresses in the market, the functioning of the credit market remained okay. People were able to trade with each other and those type of things. Markets get into June and some more fractures appear because of what was happening with interest rates. And of course, this was all mortgage-backed related security issues, but, but things started to, a few cracks started to show up. And the markets began to decline a bit. And then, of course, we get into September the 18th and Lima is forced into bankruptcy. And at that moment, it wasn't a mortgage problem at that moment. What happened the most important thing that happened, and again, this was the failure of Bear Stearns, is that nobody wanted to trade the securities that Bear Stearns was invested in. Well, when Lehman was forced into bankruptcy, what the, what the policymakers didn't realize is that when they would force Lehman into bankruptcy, they thought that'd be okay, right? We'll just push Lehman into bankruptcy. We'll resolve that issue on their books with their bad mortgages. And then everything will be fine. Well, the problem was not pushing them into bankruptcy to resolve the mortgage problem. The problem was is when they pushed Lehman into bankruptcy, nobody trusted anybody else. Everybody was like looking at everybody else going, well, who's next to go? 
So nobody wanted to trade with anybody. And all of a sudden, the entire mortgage market just froze and everybody wanted their money back. And that was it. Done. So these, so the important thing to understand about financial risk and financial instability, it's not a bank failing. That's the, that's the consequence of policy action. The Fed was hiking rates to the point that they broke something. And we've been talking about this for months, that eventually they would hike rates to the point that something would break in the system. Well, now something's broken. But there's still confidence that the system works. And people are okay with this right now. It's like, okay, great. Silicon Valley is now getting bought today by First Citizens. So we've resolved that issue. Credit Suisse was taken over by UBS. We've resolved that issue. The Fed has opened up dollar swap lines. That's providing plenty of liquidity to foreign banks. Okay, we've got those issues solved. There's still faith in the system. So the system still operates. Everybody's still trading with each other today. The markets are going to open up. NASDAQ's going to be up about 60 points this morning. S&P's going to be up about 20. The bond market's doing just fine. Everybody's trading with everybody at the moment. So what we haven't had, and this is the frustrating thing for people that are extremely bearish and going, well, this is it. This is now I'm short everything in the markets and it's all going to go to zero the problem with that is that the markets don't buy into that yet. The markets are still trading on the function of faith that everybody else is doing their job, that nobody else is pushing the big red button, right? We've talked about market instability, uh, the, the instability-stability paradox, which is that is that the, what the Fed's primary concern is, is financial stability. And as long as nobody pushes the big red button, as long as everybody's trading with everybody else, everything is fine. This is why the Fed is so very quick, along with the Treasury Department, to come out and start dropping these statements of everything is fine. Markets are, the financial markets are stable. The banks are, are, are stable. Everything is fine. Don't worry about it. Go back to, just, you can put your head down, go back to work. It's all about stability. As long as everybody's trading with everybody else, the market's fine. It's when something happens that everybody goes, hey, wait a second. I'm not so sure that if I execute a trade with Brent and his bank, that he's not going to default on me. When that loss of confidence occurs, that's when you begin to have the problem in the financial system. Right now, we don't have that. And that's what I'm saying. That, that's one of the ingredients that we're missing for a financial calamity is a lack of trust. Right now, everybody still trusts everybody. Everything's still functioning properly. And this is why markets can rally even though you're going, this doesn't make any sense. Why are markets rallying? We've got all this stuff going on right now. Why are markets rallying? This is why. Still faith. And simply the fact that markets just don't move in one direction. Technically, the markets are oversold, and so you're getting a bounce, which is what you would expect also. It's also why we put on exposure last week. doesn't make any sense, given what's going on, but that's what the technicals say, and so we have to follow our technicals. But when we come back from the break, you know, we'll kind of go through the risk. You know, I don't want, you, I don't want to dissuade you into thinking like, 
oh, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. There's a, there is a more than substantial level of risk to the markets as we move further into the year. There is a substantial risk of things breaking because of the Fed that could cause a loss of trust in the system, which leads to a bigger downturn. Another issue is, is just a realization that analyst expectations for earnings are not going to be met. That the economy is not going to avoid a recession. And that the economy is going to slow down, which will slow down earnings, bringing estimates down, which will also weigh on stock prices. So when we come back from the break, we'll go through some of those risks because there's more than one, <laughs> unfortunately. But this is the hard challenge, right? This is the challenge of investing, which is trying to navigate these periods. And it's important not to be bullish and it's important not to be bearish. You don't have to be one or the other. There's no rule in investing that says you have to be bullish or bearish. You don't have to have a one-sided view. And in fact, the problem with having a one-sided view, either bullish or bearish, is that you start to ignore the other data that gets you into trouble. So it's very important to try to weigh and balance the, the information for what it is and incorporate that into your investment strategy. This is what will help you. I mean, just like driving. If you're following your GPS, right? You follow the map. You don't say, you know, I think there's a road over here, even though that doesn't show up on the map. They'll tend to get you into a ditch. All right, be right back after the break. We end to, to several more risks here that we do need to pay attention to. One of those is commercial real estate. Don't go away. Listening to the Real Investment Show. So let's talk for a second about how we got in this mess to start with. So for the last several years, we have been running these stress tests on banks. And every year the Fed runs a stress test on the, on the major banks and says, oh, the banks are fine, right? They've got, if, if, if unemployment spikes up or if there's a rise in interest rates, they've got plenty of collateral, everything's good, right? They're, they're well capitalized. The reason that we have this problem right now with the banks in particular is because the Fed has been hiking interest rates. As the Fed was hiking interest rates, they were hiking rates because of why? Because we had inflation. So 
when the Fed hikes interest rates, they affect the short end of the curve. So when I say the curve, what are we talking about? So the yield curve is simply the difference between different interest rates on different maturities of bonds. So you think about the three-month treasury, the one-year treasury, the five-year treasury, the 10-year treasury, the 30-year treasury. And you take a look at those interest rates. And so if the three-month treasury is 1%, and I'm, and I'm loaning money for three months, that interest rate is going to be lower than if I'm loaning money for 10 years. So that 10-year rate should be, say, 4% in a normal environment. Well, the problem is, is that when the Fed hikes interest rates, they affect the short end of the curve because on the short end, the three-month, the, the one-year treasuries, the two-year treasuries, those reflect basically short-term lending rates, which is what the Fed has an impact on. It's, it's the rate at which they loan money to banks that banks loan out to people, right? So it makes sense that on the short end of the curve, if the Fed hikes rates to 4%, the two-year Treasury, as an example, would yield 4%. That's the direct correlation. On the long end, 10 years, 20 years, 30-year bonds, those are affected not by Fed funds rates. That's affected by outlooks for inflation, economic risk, default risk, those type of things. But primarily, it's inflation and economic growth. That's what drives the long end of the curve. So interest rates on the long end of the curve were going up because we had inflation. Coming out of the pandemic, of course, that was after we injected $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the system. The Fed was doing, had zero interest rates. And the Fed was doing $120 billion a month in QE. So we had this massive surge in the stock market that gave a lot of people confidence. And we gave them checks to go out and spend. So they went out and spent them. And we shut down the economy. So there was no manufacturing capacity. So we had a supply-demand imbalance. And that, that led to price inflation. And that's what we have. That was a completely normal economic outcome of the combination of events that we had. So the Fed starts hiking interest rates in order to combat inflation. How do I combat inflation by hiking interest rates? Well, I make the stuff that you borrow money at more expensive. You borrow money on the short end of the curve for most of your consumables, credit cards, auto loans, those type of things, because those are short duration loans. You don't get a 30-year loan for your car. Right. So your interest rate is reflective of what happens on the very short end of the maturity of bonds and interest rates. So when the Fed hikes interest rates, that makes car loans more expensive. It makes your credit card rate more expensive. Anything variable rate gets more expensive. And so you go, well, I can't really afford that payment, so I won't buy as much. That extracts demand out of the economy. Supply catches back up. Prices come down. That's how you get rid of inflation. Now, probably somewhere in there you have a recession, which is the outcome of the constriction of consumption, which is 70% of economic growth. So why is all this important? Because that's how we got into this mess with the banks. The Fed's hiking interest rates, and interest rates are going up on the long end because of inflation. And all these banks were sitting on this collateral that they had on their books, right? So when banks take in a deposit, and we talked about fractional reserve banking uh, 
week before last. Banks take in a deposit. They can loan out. Basically, they're only at 100 cents on the dollar. There's no reserve requirement anymore. But theoretically, they hold some reserves. But they bring in a dollar. They can loan out 90 cents. The difference is basically invested in bonds as collateral. And so they hold these, this collateral in their books. Well, that collateral fell to about 90 cents on the dollar. And depending on the quality of the collateral, could have fallen more because of higher interest rates. The problem comes, and this is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, is when people want their money back. So if I've got $100 million that comes into my bank, so I've got, let's just assume hypothetically I've got one client in my bank and he gives me $100 million. And I turn around and I loan out $90 million of it to other businesses. The other 10 million I take and I buy 10-year treasuries with. Okay? That's perfectly okay. Now I've got the interest income coming in from the treasuries and I've got the loan interest coming in from the 90 million that I put out there in terms of small business loans. Um, I've guaranteed my depositor of $100 million, I've guaranteed him a 3% interest on his money and I'm collecting four to five. So I'm keeping the spread. That's how I make my money. Bank makes its money, depositor gets his money, small businesses get their loans, it's all good. It's all fine until interest rates go up. Now my collateral is no longer 10 million, it's now 9 million because interest rates have gone up. So I've got access to $9 million. If I go to market and I sell that $10 million of bonds, I'm going to get 9 million for it. So I can raise $9 million just like that if I need it. I can't go to all the small businesses that I loan the other $90 million out to. I can't say, pay me back today because I need my money. Can't do that. That money's out there for five years, 10 years, whatever the length of those loans were. But I can't go to those businesses and say, give me my money back because they haven't defaulted. Now, I could go get it if they were in default or whatever, but as long as they're paying their, their monthly payments... I don't have a legal recourse to go reclaim that money ahead of schedule. So that money's not available to me. So the only thing I have access to is that collateral in the, that I've got in the bond sitting out there that was $10 million, is now $9 million. Now my depositor comes back to me and says, oh, by the way, I need $20 million bucks back. I've got nine. Now it's a very simplistic issue but this is this is what happened to silicon valley bank basically right it's it's more complex and again this is a very simplistic explanation but you understand i don't have enough money to give my depositor back his money this is and this is the problem with the bank run is that when everybody showed up and, and again as we've talked about in our in our previous blog post last week the problem is electronic banking. You know, electronic you know, banking from your phone is great. It's very convenient. The problem is, is that as a banker, I can go to bed on Friday, everything is fine, and Monday morning walk into my bank and there's $40 million that left the bank over the weekend in terms of electronic transfers. And that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Literally, money just evaporated overnight. Deposits fled the bank. And there wasn't enough collateral to cover. 
that risk is still there. We haven't resolved that risk. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist with Silicon Valley Bank anymore, but that risk is still out there because right now that collateral sitting on a lot of these bank balance sheets. And again, if you're with J.P. Morgan or Bank of America, you don't have anything to worry about. Don't go freak out and go take all your money out of J.P. Morgan and, you know, because you're worried about the bank failing. J.P. Morgan's fine. It's these small region, smaller, mid-sized to small regional banks that have the potential issue. And one of the big issues they have is commercial real estate. There's an interesting chart out this morning talking about the amount of, of debt that is coming due on commercial real estate loans over the next five years. And this is just a massive debt wall of, of debt that's coming due. Here's the problem. We were building office space like crazy after 2008. Real estate market was booming. Everything was great. Everybody's building buildings and everything else. And the problem with that is, is that, you know, this is all dependent upon companies leasing office space, right? I build an office building. Why do I build an office building? Because I want companies to lease the space, hire people, put people to work. They come to the office every day. They do their job. They pay their rent. And they go home, Right. Well, this whole pandemic thing changed the equation because now all of a sudden people are working remote, they're working at home, they're doing things, they're not coming to the office. And so businesses are going, hey, I'm going to rethink my office space. I'm going to downsize my office space. I'm going to do shared offices. I'm going to do less office space. I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to allow more people to work from home, whatever the issue is. And there's all this office space that, A, nobody wants. People built it. A lot of projects were in the pipeline that are now completing. So now there's all this office space that nobody wants. And, and the office space that people do have, they're trying to get rid of. So the people that took out these, these corporate commercial office space loans, a lot of those are at small and regional banks. That's who loans the money for a lot of, because that's a very local business. When I build a business and uh, build a building in Houston, I borrow it from a Houston bank, most likely. That's where the risk is in commercial real estate. And that's why we're probably not yet through these bank issues. What happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank was likely our Bear Stearns moment. More is probably going to come late this year, maybe next year. We'll see. All right, be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs> So pay attention to the commercial real estate space. Uh, you know, that's kind of the next shoe to drop, so to speak, in terms of the risk of the markets because of all the bank exposure that is related to commercial real estate. Multifamily is also a big problem. It's been a big, um, a, a huge buildup. And this, uh, this occurred after the Trump administration passed the Opportunity Zones. Everybody went out and built these multifamily office complexes and these opportunity zones and a lot of those aren't going to work out and uh, there's just too much supply versus demand and and those prices are going to come down so just you know that that's going to be the next big risk because a lot of these projects were financed with loans either through private equity and investments uh, investor investments etc or they were done through banks 
and uh, loans were behind those, construction loans, et cetera. There's a lot of risk of defaults coming up over the next uh, two to three years on a lot of those type of properties. So th that's going to be the next big kind of risk to mid-sized banks um, and something to pay attention to. I want to shift gears here real quick because I saw an interesting uh, article this morning. It was actually a survey. And it was done, the, the survey was done by Statista. And it was talking about the share of U.S. respondents who use buy now, pay later schemes by generation. And this is a percent. 5% of baby boomers use them. 8% of Gen X, those born between 1965 and 1979. Millennials, 14%. And uh, Gen Z, those born after 1995, 11%. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? We have done everything we can to make things more convenient for people, which I think is a good thing, right? I mean, so many simple ways to go buy things if you want them. And the problem is, when I hear these articles, or I don't guess I really hear an article, I read an article or I hear stories about the consternation of millennials and Gen Z's complaining about how baby boomers have all the wealth and they don't have the wealth. And at this point of their life, compared to baby boomers, they haven't built up the wealth that, that baby boomers had. You got to hold on for a second. I get it, right? The wealth gap, wealth inequality certainly is a problem. A lot of that's been exacerbated since 2008 because of everything that we've done for the financial system. But you also have to go back and look at habits and what people are doing with their money. So baby boomers, right? I go back and look at my parents. My parents didn't have a credit card. They paid for everything in cash. The only debt they had was their mortgage on this little, you know, 1,100 square foot, three bedroom, one and a half bath house that they raised their family in that cost like 30 grand. the mortgage payment made up about 10% of my, my dad's gross income, who was very middle class, very, 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 actually, let's say lower middle class. He, he worked at a versing plant. My mom was a school teacher. So not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. Paycheck to paycheck was a way of life growing up. But, you know, the focus was no debt, save some money, had some money in the bank, and you work, right? You, go, you work hard, keep your head down, do your job, make money, support your family. That's, that's what they did. And so when you do that long enough, you save up a decent amount of money, right? So the interesting thing is you take a look at millennials and Gen Z's today, and you look at their financial habits and where they're spending money and how they're spending money, you know, $2,000 iPhones with a monthly service bill, $1,000 car notes, mortgage payments that make up more than 25% of their income, right? And, and 
you know, it's certainly understandable that they're frustrated that they can't save money and that they're not getting paid more and all those type of things. But that doesn't, I can pay you more, right, to do a job, but then you're going to spend more. You go, oh, I got more money, so I'm going to go buy a nicer car or I'm going to buy a nicer house, you know. And so a lot of this really comes down to financial habits. And it's always easy to point fingers at other people and, and blame your situation on others. You know, I can't save money. I'm behind. You know, I, I have a student loan. Nobody forced you to take out a student loan. I get it. I understand why you did. I'm not saying that you did wrong by doing it, but I'm just saying nobody put a gun to your head and made you take out a student loan. So we have to, as individuals, step back and go, okay, what did I do to get myself into? Look, I've been in bad financial situations in my life, right, where I had to step back. Nobody bailed me out. That's why I lived in my truck for three years, <laughs> because... You know, I wanted to start a business and I didn't have the money to do it. So I had to, you know, figure it out. And nobody was there to bail me out. Nobody was there to help me. I had to do it myself. You know, so we, it's easy to blame other people for your plight in life, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's only you that can fix that situation. And I got I, I've, you know, my, my family gets ticked off at me because I have a crappy phone and I just refuse to pay a lot of money for a phone. It's just, it, for me, I do two things on it. It's, I answer emails because everybody emails me constantly. So I need that for business, right? I have to have an ability to email from my phone because otherwise I'd literally sit at my desk all day. But the other thing I need is just simply to make phone calls <laughs> so I can call clients or whoever it is I need to talk to. Outside of that, I don't use my phone for much. Oh, I use it for a clock. I forgot. <laughs> but honestly, if I, could, if I could send emails on a flip phone, I would be on a flip phone, honestly. I mean, I, I would buy the cheapest phone I could find because, you know, that's it. And when someday when I quit this job, I will not have a phone, period, because I don't want anybody to call me. <laughs> But, you know, what my children have to learn, and this is the hard lessons that I try to teach them, is that the decisions they make are very dependent upon their outcomes. And, you know, they, you know right now, you know, they, they want, you know, they're, they're young, right? And so I remember being that age, I wanted nice cars and nice houses and all those type of things. And that's, you know, the, the very tough part of growing up is understanding the benefit of delayed gratification. This is what I want. I want I want to drive a Lamborghini, right? Okay, I'm going to save up. Not really, not, not me, but I'm just as an example. If you want to drive a Lamborghini, that's awesome, right? $200,000. You save up the money for it and you pay cash for it. If that's really what you want to spend your money on, here's the interesting thing that happens when you do that. When I saved up enough money that I could buy whatever car I wanted, I didn't want to buy the Lamborghini anymore because I had to work so hard to save up that money. I'm like, that money was, I, 
do I really want to take that money that I worked that hard to save and put it into a car? And the answer was no. I said, well, how can I take this money and make more money with it, right? That's, so I learned how to invest and I learned how to do other stuff. And I've learned to make that money grow. And, and that's become the focus now for both me and my wife is, is how do we make our, our wealth grow? That's how, how, do we, how do we save more money? What can we do to save more money to make our wealth grow? That's our focus. That's what that's that's what is our level of gratification. So you know, we 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 drive used cars. We live in a re, a modest house. We we do those things. We make modest choices because that's our focus now, right? And that's a very different focus than you have with your that uh, that you had as a child. And and the problem today is is that everything in front of our kids is all about immediate gratification. Right. Every time they open up social media, they're being inundated with advertisements for this thing or that thing or whatever. And they're being inundated with with people that they look up to. And, and I don't want to say respect, but people they that are in that are popular. Right. Because everybody wants to be popular. So they look at other people that are popular. What are they wearing? What are they promoting? Right. I want to be like her or him. So I'm going to wear his clothes or her clothes or whatever it is that she's she's promoting. And so I've got to have it now. And so teaching our kids to have delayed gratification is what will separate them from everyone else in that millennial generation. This whole idea of I can buy now and pay later, it sounds great, right? You can have it today. The paying for it later is the hard part because of the interest payments. And this is the debt trap that we've gotten an entire generation deeply into that is going to, to plague them for the rest of their life. And, and the, this idea of wealth inequality is, is only going to exacerbate over the years as, as younger generations take on more and more debt to live well above their means. But we can change that for them. We have to start educating our kids about delayed gratification, the evils of debt. And if we do those things, we will build a healthier, more prosperous generation. It's a tough challenge, but it's something that we have to do. All right, that wraps up the show for today. We'll be back tomorrow, of course, as we get things back underway here live on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Our latest newsletter is out talking about, well, this whole idea of buy signals. It's in the it's in the, the, the newsletter this weekend. Also, I'll have an updated blog for that tomorrow as well on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Got any questions, comments, emails, be sure to email me right there off the website. Happy to help you out. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you tomorrow.